Chapter 4, Pulmonology, Topic 7, Obstructive Lung Disease. Before we go into specific pathology, we will review a flow volume loop. To visualize the function of the lungs, we use something called a flow volume loop. This is a graph that plots the amount of air expelled from the lungs, volume, against the speed at which that air is expelled, flow. It provides an invaluable insight into the mechanics of breathing and can help us differentiate between various types of lung diseases. In a normal person, the expiratory curve of the flow volume loop is smooth and rounded. However, in obstructive lung diseases like asthma or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, this expiratory curve becomes flattened. This is due to the inability to expel carbon dioxide efficiently because of the narrowed airways. Now let's contrast that with restrictive lung diseases. These are conditions where the lungs are unable to fully expand, resulting in a reduced total lung capacity. Conditions like pulmonary fibrosis or sarcoidosis fall in this category. The flow volume loop in restrictive lung diseases is different from that seen in obstructive diseases. While the shape of the curve is similar to that of a healthy person, that is, it's not flattened, the actual volumes of air are smaller. This is due to the impaired ability of the lungs to fill with air, which results in decreased lung volumes. Now let's talk about asthma. It is characterized by airway hyperreactivity, which results in bronchoconstriction, leading to obstructive lung disease. Certain risk factors may increase the likelihood of developing asthma. These include a family history of the condition, being male, having allergies or atopy, and not being breastfed as an infant. There are a number of triggers that can lead to an asthma attack or exacerbate the symptoms. These include GERD, which is particularly associated with nighttime asthma, upper respiratory tract infections, allergens like pollen and dander, certain medications like aspirin and beta blockers, smoking, cold weather, and exercise. The signs and symptoms of asthma can range from mild to severe. They include wheezing, dyspnea, tachypnea, cough, and chest pain. Symptoms often improve with bronchodilators. In severe cases, there may be pulses paradoxus, absent breath sounds and wheezing and cyanosis. Diagnosing asthma involves a number of steps. Clinically, severity is determined based on the frequency of symptoms, presence of nighttime symptoms, and their effect on daily activities. Pulmonary function tests, or PFTs, show an obstructive lung pattern and can help differentiate asthma from other conditions like COPD. A methacholine challenge can be used in patients who describe a history of asthma but have normal PFTs and are currently asymptomatic. Arterial blood gas analysis may show respiratory alkalosis. Normal pH or respiratory acidosis may indicate respiratory fatigue and worsening asthma exacerbation. Peak expiratory flow, measured with a home device, is used to determine the severity of an asthma exacerbation and how far a patient is from their baseline. Let's move on to the management of asthma. The first step is to avoid exacerbating factors. Pharmacologically, management follows a step-up approach, where each treatment is added onto the previous regimen. Step 1 involves short-acting beta agonists like albuterol or levalbuterol, which are used for acute exacerbations in patients with intermittent asthma. The second step involves low-dose inhaled corticosteroids like fluticasone or butacinide, which are first-line treatment for chronic asthma. However, side effects like oral thrush can occur, so it's important to rinse the mouth after use. If these measures are not enough, the third step involves a low dose of inhaled corticosteroids combined with long-acting beta agonists like salmeterol or formoterol or medium-dose inhaled corticosteroids monotherapy. Step 4 involves a medium dose of inhaled corticosteroid plus long-acting beta agonist. And Step 5, a maximum dose of inhaled corticosteroids plus long-acting beta agonist.
For patients with high levels of immunoglobin E, omalizumab, an E-monoclonal antibody, may be considered. If the patient is not responding to step-up management, the sixth step involves oral corticosteroids. In each of these steps, it's crucial to ensure that patients are administering their medication in the proper manner. There are also alternative treatments available, such as leukotriene antagonists like Montelukast or Zafirlukast, Theophylline, which is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor with a narrow therapeutic index, Zeluton, Chromalin sodium, which prevents mast cell degranulation, and Magnesium sulfate, used in severe asthma exacerbations in the emergency department in patients unresponsive to initial treatment. Another option for severe cases is bronchial thermoplasty, a procedure that removes smooth muscle hyperplasia in the bronchial airways. Finally, it's important to be aware of potential complications of asthma. One such complication is allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis, or ABPA. Continuing our discussion on asthma, I would like to focus on the management of acute asthma exacerbations. In an acute asthma exacerbation, the severity is determined based on the difference in peak expiratory flow from the patient's baseline and the results of arterial blood gas analysis. Initial treatment typically involves administering a short-acting beta agonist, corticosteroids, and oxygen. We monitor the patient's response to treatments using peak expiratory flow, pulse oximetry, and by assessing the presence of wheezing. Importantly, long-acting beta agonists should never be used in acute exacerbations as they have been shown to increase mortality. The decision on whether to admit the patient from the emergency department after an asthma exacerbation is dependent upon their degree of response to initial treatments. A good response may lead to discharge from the ED. However, a poor or worsening response may necessitate admission to the hospital, potentially even the ICU. In severe cases where patients develop respiratory fatigue, show signs of normalizing pH, altered mental status, or a silent chest characterized by absent wheezing and breath sounds, mechanical ventilation, or non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, such as bi-level positive airway pressure, BiPAP, may be considered, moving to a few factoids regarding chronic asthmatics. In managing chronic asthmatics, there are several additional considerations. You may consider referring the patient to a pulmonologist at step 3 or 4 of their management plan. It's also important to note that most patients' asthma symptoms will significantly decrease or resolve by adolescence. As a general rule, beta blockers, especially nonspecific beta blockers, should be avoided unless absolutely necessary in patients with chronic asthma. Additionally, ensure that patients are vaccinated against pneumococcal disease and influenza, as these infections can exacerbate asthma symptoms. Lastly, an interesting note is the phenomenon of aspirin-induced asthma. Aspirin inhibits cyclooxygenase, which results in shunting of the arachidonic acid system down the leukotriene pathway, increasing leukotriene levels which have bronchoconstrictive effects. This can trigger an asthma attack in susceptible individuals. Speaking of asthma-related conditions, we will now briefly turn our attention to allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis. Allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis is an allergic reaction to a fungus called aspergillus that colonizes the bronchopulmonary tree. The main risk factors are asthma and cystic fibrosis. In terms of signs and symptoms, allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis often presents as recurrent refractory asthma exacerbations. Other symptoms can include fever, malaise, the expectoration of brownish sputum and mucus plugs, and rhinosinusitis. Diagnosing allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis can be a bit tricky as there is no single definitive test. Instead, a combination of signs, symptoms, and test results meeting certain diagnostic criteria are used. 
a chest X-ray may show central bronchiectasis, indicative of recurrent fleeting pulmonary infiltrates. There is often eosinophilia, or an elevated number of eosinophils, a type of white blood cell, in the blood. Serum immunoglobin E levels are typically elevated, and immunoglobin E and immunoglobin G antibodies against aspergillus are usually present. The management of allergic bronchopulmonary aspergillosis includes avoidance of aspergillus antigens. This often means avoiding places like basements and areas with mold. In terms of pharmacological management, itraconazole, an antifungal medication, along with systemic glucocorticoids, are typically used. Next, we will review bronchiectasis. It is a chronic condition characterized by permanent abnormal dilation of the medium to large airways in the lungs. Some of the risk factors for bronchiectasis include cystic fibrosis and primary ciliary dyskinesia, also known as Cartagener syndrome. Chronic infections, such as tuberculosis or aspergillus, can result in focal bronchiectasis. Collagen vascular diseases like rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's syndrome, smoking, neoplasia, or foreign bodies, common variable immunodeficiency, and recurrent aspiration can also increase the risk. Signs and symptoms of bronchiectasis include a high volume, chronic productive cough, hemoptysis, or coughing up blood, dyspnea, wheezing, and chest pain. To diagnose bronchiectasis, chest imaging is used. A chest x-ray is often the initial test. A CT scan can provide more detailed images showing bronchial wall thickening and dilation and a lack of airway tapering. The dilation of the airway seen in bronchiectasis is irreversible, so treatment is directed at the underlying cause to prevent further airway dilation. For acute exacerbations, antibiotics based on prior sputum cultures and sensitivities are often used. Prophylactic macrolides can be used for recurrent exacerbations and long-term chest physiotherapy can help manage the condition. In cases of focal bronchiectasis, focal resection may be an option. One serious complication of bronchiectasis is severe hemoptysis. This is a medical emergency and requires immediate attention. The last topic in this section is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. COPD is a classification of disorders that includes chronic bronchitis and emphysema. The main risk factor is smoking. Signs and symptoms of COPD can vary but often include a chronic productive cough lasting more than three months for two consecutive years, a condition known as chronic bronchitis. Other symptoms include wheezing, hyperresonance on percussion, distant heart sounds, dyspnea or shortness of breath on exertion, tachypnea or rapid breathing, pursed lip breathing, chest pain or discomfort, and a barrel-shaped chest due to an increased anterior-posterior diameter. Diagnosing COPD involves clinical examination and imaging. A chest x-ray may reveal hyperinflation and flattening of the diaphragms, visualization of more than 10 posterior ribs, and an increased retrosternal space. A CT scan can show centrolobular emphysema involving the upper lobes and the presence of cysts or bullae. Pulmonary function tests will typically show an obstructive lung disease pattern characterized by an FEV1 to FVC ratio less than 70% and FEV1 less than 80% with incomplete airflow limitation after the administration of bronchodilators. An arterial blood gas may show chronic hypercapnia with metabolic compensation. The management of COPD involves multiple strategies. Smoking cessation is critical. The severity of the disease is determined using the gold staging system, which categorizes patients into groups A through D based on factors such as FEV1, severity of symptoms, presence of comorbidities, and number of exacerbations. For acute exacerbations, treatment includes short-acting beta agonists, 
like albuterol or levobuterol, short-acting muscarinic antagonists like ipratropium, and systemic glucocorticoids like prednisone. Chronic management involves long-acting muscarinic antagonists like teotropium, aclidinium, eumeclidinium, and glycopyrrolate, which are first-line treatments. Long-acting beta agonists and inhaled glucocorticoids may also be used. In severe disease triple therapy, a combination of a long-acting muscarinic antagonist, a long-acting beta agonist, and a glucocorticoid may be necessary. Other considerations include long-term oxygen therapy for chronic hypoxemia, roflumilast for refractory COPD with multiple exacerbations, pulmonary rehabilitation, and vaccination against pneumococcal disease and influenza. Complications of COPD include acute on chronic exacerbations with symptoms of worsening cough, sputum production, and dyspnea. In these cases, antibiotics may be added to the treatment regimen. Another serious complication is respiratory failure requiring mechanical ventilation and core pulmonale, a condition that causes right heart failure. Lastly, it's important to note that emphysema is a pathological diagnosis defined as the enlargement and destruction of air spaces distal to the terminal bronchioles.